Can it be done or not? How soon before the plant becomes operational? Three weeks, maybe less. Well, it's been a while since I've flown an F-18, and I'm not sure who I trust to fly the other three, but I'll find a way to make it work. I think you misunderstand, Captain. Sir? We don't want you to fly it. We want you to teach it. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? It's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 215, and our movie this week was Top Gun Maverick. And here to talk to me about it, Adam from the So Wizard Podcast. How are you? Doing good. Glad to be back. Excellent. Yes, glad. Good to have you back. All right, so my first question for you is... um, were you a fan or did you watch the original Top Gun? I did. I mean, of course, it's one of those classics. Uh, when they were doing the sequel, I was hesitant, but that's kind of the age we're living in now. <laughs> Everything old sure. is new again. <laughs> yep. Yep, which I'm sure we're going to get into quite a bit. Uh, yeah. So so you were a fan of the, the original one. You'd seen that, but you were a little tentative about this one, but you did finally get to watch it. So, yes. Um, Overall, uh, how was that experience that first time watching it? Overall, I really liked it. Uh, It's definitely one you want to watch on the largest format you can. Like, this is not one to watch (laughs) on your phone on the way to work. (laughs) No, no, not at all. Um, But it just had, I I was saying, I had a friend over to watch it, and I was saying it to him, it's like, a lot of the lines were kind of predictable, and you know how it's going to turn out and all that, but it's kind of good in a way because it's like that comfortable feeling of nostalgia even though it was a new movie because we Mm -hmm. don't get like blockbuster type movies like that unless it's marvel at this point this is true yeah yeah um so like you i had seen the original there was an inescapable thing um and uh i definitely i saw that when i was a kid um i watched it several times since then i've always enjoyed it you know i know what it is it's a it's a naval recruiting video for mm-hmm. two hours, um, which I'm fine. That's fine. It's an enjoyable movie, and uh, it looks great. Tony Scott, I feel like, is an underrated action director. He was he was really good at capturing imagery uh, that stuck with you and making action movies that you cared you know that you cared about characters in too. Um, and so when this was getting made, uh, I was kind of like you. I was a little bit skeptical because sequels are always tough legacy sequels even more so where there's been so long of a gap between the movies yes Um, and in this case we were over 30 years since the first movie had come out and this was supposed to come out in 2019 i think they were filming in 2018 uh and then it was like late 2019 early 2020 but then they pushed it back and pushed it back then covid hit and it got pushed back a little little further and tom cruise was adamant that this had to be released in theaters and i'm with you watching this movie you i did go and see it in the theater you have to watch this on the biggest screen you can find yeah um because it is visually stunning watching this movie and knowing what they put into it because they were really it was really important to tom cruise and to joseph kaczynski uh who directed it that they do as much as they could in camera with real flights 
like they did in the first movie. Because that was the thing with Top Gun in 1986 was it was unprecedented for an aerial dogfighting movie. The level of uh, like access they got from the Department mm-hmm. of Defense um, and the types of footage that they could get. It didn't just look it, it looked like nothing we'd ever seen at that time. Um, and so to kind of try to recreate that was pretty impressive. Yeah, and it really it has a different feel. I mean, I know obviously people say that with like CG characters versus real, you could definitely tell that. But in this, it was seamless as to what was practical and what they had to enhance or change with a computer. And all of it, you you could tell me the entire thing was real. You could tell me the entire thing was animated. I would believe you both ways. Yeah, because they really put they put so much effort into it, and I can't imagine filming this from a from a cinematography standpoint where you are like outdoor shoots are always hard anyway, right? Because you're you're at the you're at the mercy of your environment, and in this case, not only were they at the mercy of the environment and the the lighting that they could get from the sun in these planes, but for a lot of those scenes, I found you, you find out that uh, the actors were doing the camera start and stop. Um, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Because they would have it all, all rigged in the cockpit. And so they had to start the camera. They had to stop the camera. They had to do things like touching up their own makeup before a, before a shot would go and all that kind of stuff. Um, because you can't get a camera operator into that. It's the pilot yeah. and then the actor and that's it. Um, so that was kind of uh, really cool to, to hear about. But yeah, I just love the look of all of this. And I'm with you. There are parts of it that are definitely CG and green screen. Um, I think a majority, if I'm right, a majority of the end dogfight in the F-14 is uh, more done green screen than the rest of the movie where they had the F-18s because they didn't have a working F-14 to to use. I couldn't tell. No, They're, not at like, all. It, it's, it's seamless. It's so well done. It also helps to have a director that has a visual effects background like Kaczynski has um, mm. because he he's not only does he know visual effects, he knows legacy sequels will kind of get into. And uh, and so that helps a lot, I think, when you're doing a movie like this, even like you're talking about the difficulty of the shooting. And it's not just the physically when you're there shooting something, it's difficult, but it's also like, how do you plan? How do you storyboard this? Because it's so disjointed. You have to film mm-hmm. all this jet stuff. You have to film all the ground stuff. You have to film all the face reactions. And it's not even like an Iron Man where you can have Robert Downey Jr. in like a sound booth because you don't see anything around him. You right. see the planes <laughs> around the actors. It all has to line up somehow. And I mean, there was probably a lot of computer trickery in there. But even with that, you have to see the final picture in your head as you know what shots you need. It's it's incredible. Yep. Yeah. And, and they pull it off so well. And they did. I mean... There was training that they had to go through in order to get in the get in the cockpits and fly. Um, they didn't obviously hit the the types of G levels that they were talking about mm-hmm. in the movie. Um, but I do think, I mean, Tom Cruise, I believe, probably got up there and had somebody pull seven and a half Gs on him while you know while he was in the cockpit because he's a crazy person and would do. He stuff probably like insisted that. on it. If he could hang off the side of the plane while they were doing it, and they'd let him, <laughs> yeah. he would do that. Um, but. You know, you had uh, you had all these other Miles Teller and uh, and characters, you know, actors in the in the jets doing all this stuff, um, which is just incredible to think about. Uh, it's also funny because Miles Teller is quite a bit taller than uh, than Tom Cruise. 
there so was a couple scenes where they didn't the even do the apple boxes <laughs> i know they just let him be that much taller than him uh i did read john ham had uh, a quote where he's like i'm just really glad that my character didn't have any uh jet fighting scenes so i didn't have to go through all of that because <laughs> he got to he got to stay on the ground the whole time um but yeah so like Joseph Kaczynski, who directed this, I don't know if you're familiar with him and other work that he's done, but he was he was the guy that brought us Tron Legacy. I really enjoyed um, that. That's an underrated movie. I am with you. Uh, and I feel like we're a little bit in a minority, although a growing minority of people mm -hmm. that really enjoyed that movie. Because you look at Tron and Tron Legacy, and those are also 30, I think, 28 years apart. So I think Tron was 82 and Tron Legacy was like 2010. Um, but how much things changed between those movies visually and yet it still felt like the same world. Yeah. Even Which in the world of video games that do. age incredibly quickly. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. This is not easy to do. So Kaczynski was the right person to bring in and have direct this movie. I feel like, and he had worked with Tom Cruise before, uh, on oblivion. Um, and that was the movie he did right after Tron legacy, actually. And I kind of like him. Um, he, really, his big ones are Tron Legacy, Oblivion. Uh, he did Only the Brave, which I have not seen. Um, this, and then he did a movie called Spiderhead. Um, that, that was okay. Uh, I heard mixed reviews on. Uh, but, you know, it's got Hemsworth. It's got uh, Miles Teller. I like Miles Teller quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, I love Miles Teller. And uh, I liked him in this, particularly. While yes. he's basically, he's kind of, he's a little one-note uh, for the first half of the movie, this movie feel okay. Let me let me ask you this: Did this feel like two different movies to you? Yes and no. Um, I okay. think the no part of it is that, well, the yes part is that it's a throwback to how they used to make movies, and the yes part mm -hmm. is with the new flair. Okay. So I think that's why it felt like two different movies. But to me, it was almost part of the experience. Yeah, I can see that. I narratively there felt like there was a big divide too. like at that one hour mark it's about two hours and 10 minutes and somewhere around that one hour mark when we sort of shift gears into now we're going to do the the trench run um yeah. that they're doing uh it did feel like like during that time that they were pushing back and kind of um delaying the movie a little bit that maybe they refined some story elements and sort of changed some things up because I, if I have a complaint, it's that it felt like um, Rooster went from w like too quickly kind of came around to Maverick. Yeah. And we didn't we didn't have a lot of like lead up to that. It was sort of angry, 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 angry. And then, oh, he's fine with him. It's OK now. Sort of. And there thing. was hardly like, even like a him. conversation with Maverick where Rooster would be like, OK, I need to marinate in this a while. Now I see his point of view. It's mm -hmm. like you said, it kind of. It's weird because it felt a little bit like the story was stalling and then it felt like the mission comes on abruptly all at once. Yeah. Yeah, that's really the only complaint I kind of have with this movie is just that because everything that they do works and this is a movie that's playing on nostalgia. Yes. You mentioned that already. It's definitely just a warm blanket. If you liked Top Gun, you like this movie because it's hitting all those same story beats. This is you know, Star Wars, the force awakens. <laughs> yes. That's the perfect example <laughs> where it's, it's going to, it's going to take and just, just remix a little bit of what they've already done, but it works. And 
right down to like our introduction to Rooster is him playing a piano, singing Great Balls of Fire. The same. Wearing song, a Hawaiian yeah. shirt. Like everything is exactly the same. Some people can find that a little, a little schmaltzy and a little too on the nose. I didn't mind that because they were portraying that character as just really leaning into who his dad was and and being that guy. And ultimately, this story is about Pete Mitchell. It's about Maverick and what he's going through at this stage in his life. Um, and so for him to ha- you know, be faced with, here is now Goose's son at the age Goose was when he died mm-hmm. or really close to that. And so for him to be so much like his dad, even though he barely knew his dad, um, is that's hard for Maverick to have to deal with. And he's dealing with sort of the, the whole idea that he's, he's getting too old for the Navy and they don't want, you know, he's, he's not getting promoted, but he doesn't want to get promoted either. Like he just wants to stay as a pilot and the Navy's kind of like, no, you're, you're in your fifties now. You've been doing this for 30 years. You can't just continue to be a pilot but it's all he knows how to do. So that didn't bother me too much. Um, and again, Miles Teller, I think just looks the part and, and plays the part really well. He did a, just, a lot with a little. Yeah. I just wanted a better transition between angry rooster and the rooster. That's like, no, I just saved your life because it's the it, like, if more of the first part of it had been that sort of underlying respect for Maverick, that you can mm-hmm. see he has once they start the mission that uh, I just wish there had been more of that kind of sort of given to us in the early parts of the movie instead of him just being angry. I feel like there's probably a lot of that shot because especially in the first third of the movie, I would say there's a lot thrown at you where it's like, oh, is this going to be time kind of Tom Cruise fades to the background a little bit? And it's about uh, rooster and I, I forget all their call signs, a hangman. Uh, Phoenix, because mm-hmm. they're really and, and Bob, which was you know a funny joke that I thought was going to have a payoff at the end, but they just didn't have time for all these little things. But they planted so many seeds where there could be a five-hour cut of this movie where everyone gets their due and everyone gets their story. Yeah, and I think that was the original idea, if I remember correctly. When I first heard that they were going into final, finally going into production instead of just the development hell of like, oh, a Top Gun sequel is going to get made, that you know, like they're still doing with Highlander right now. They've been talking about the Highlander sequel for 20 years. Um, that what I had heard was that it was going to be Maverick as sort of a, a secondary character. Like he was going to be in the movie and he was going to be a part of it, but it was more of a passing the torch and let's, let's get the, the younger crew in. And I think somewhere along the line, it was decided, no, we really need to make this about Maverick and that's, what's going to get people into the theater. And I do, I, the business side of filmmaking is a major part of it. There's no escaping that. It's it yeah. is an art form, but it's also a business. Well, especially and, now with movies like this becoming more expensive than they're worth a lot of times. Yeah, absolutely. And so normally I would heavily heavily rail against like, well, we need to do the best to, you know, the business side of things. Because as somebody who has made films and and enjoys the art of filmmaking, I want the art part of it to be the forefront. But somebody somewhere was like, you know what? We need to focus on Maverick because that's going to, especially with the pandemic, and we're going to push things back and we need to start trying to get people back into theaters. 
mm-hmm. a movie like this with how much it is going to cost to make, whether he's a main character or not. And because Tom Cruise is helping to produce it, like he probably thought the same thing. We need to get people in the theater and what's going to get them in the theater is something that they recognize. And so that kind of made sense. And that's probably where that, that little bit of disjointedness comes in, in the two halves of the movie. Um, I will say when I saw this the first time, and I'm, I'm curious if you had a similar experience. So the opening, uh, first they have the opening to the movie itself on the aircraft carrier, which is just pure. We're just going to recreate the opening of Top Gun. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm fine with that. Like not a problem, uh, because that stuff's just cool to watch. But when they get to Maverick and he's in his hangar and he's working on his P-51 Mustang and it's time to to go and he, he hops on his old motorcycle and rides out and they're going to do the test flight. As that was going on and then they had the moment where he pushed beyond Mach 10 and you like, you know, oh crap, he's doing something dumb. He's doing what he's not supposed to do and the plane blows up. My first thought was, did we just watch the death of Maverick and now we're going to be like, here's what happened leading up to that moment. Because that was kind of the feeling that I got was like, okay, now we're going to talk about what happened leading him up to this moment where he was once again going to push the envelope too far. And then they didn't go that route, which I'm kind of glad that they didn't. But like, yeah, that was my feeling the first time watching. I was like, oh, are we doing this in the movie? And then, of course, as it kept going, I realized they weren't doing that. Was that at all similar for you or, or not? I see what you're saying. Um, just knowing that it's a legacy sequel to a beloved movie from the 80s, I didn't see a world where Maverick didn't walk away with a happy ending. <laughs> Fair enough. They could well, have done I, a I thing do... where it leads up to that, and then or it, you think he's dead, and the whole movie you think he's dead leads up to that, and then it mm-hmm. turns out you know like they, they catch up to where it is, and then it continues on, and yeah. it wasn't. I felt like there could have been a little bit more fallout because that jet probably cost, you know, $2 billion or more. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even wrap um, my head around the kind of money, but that was also kind of a cool way. Like it, you start the movie off exciting and it's also like, this is why he's a 30 year captain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is why he's still just a pilot because he does that. Yeah. Um, it, it's a, it's a really fun opening scene that, uh, you know, you get Ed Harris, which is always a win in my book. If Ed yep, Harris shows up, he, there are so few, like I shouldn't say so few, but there are, there are actors that just can play an antagonist better than anyone else. And Ed Harris is one of them. He's not always a bad guy, mm-hmm. but he's so good at playing somebody who you can butt heads with because he's just got like, there's something to his speech patterns that just make him sound like he is the most stubborn human being to ever walk the earth. (laughs) And he's so good at that. Um, and you know, to take over, he's sort of the opening to this movie. He's the, the version of, uh, what's his name that went on to, or was in back to the future as well. Um, uh, I can't think of his name now. But you know who the bald actor that was the principal in Back to the Future, and he was the, oh yeah, I don't know the actor. He was in yeah, the, Strickland was the character, but Strickland, yeah, that actor, um, who I'll I'll find his name here, but he was sort of this movie's version of that guy, and Ed Harris is the perfect kind of legacy version of that character. I feel yeah, it was so, a little strange because I feel like Ed Harris and John Hamm. I mean, maybe because I just don't know the military protocols, but I feel like they could have been like you didn't need two roles for that. 
No, you're you're right. And Ace, thank you. James Tolkien is the the character or the actor. Um, you're right. That that was kind of the same character in a way, or the, at least it was it was a character filling the same role. Yeah. Um, I think the main difference was John Hamm is sort of taking the place of who Tom Skerritt was in the first Top Gun without the kind of mentor angle because you don't really need that for Maverick at this yeah. point. He is that mentor. He is Viper for all intents and purposes. But they had the John Hamm character being, you know, a former Top Gun uh, grad himself. Um, and they had to really walk that line of like making him uh, effective as a commanding officer, as a flight boss without making it too much of like, well, all he's going to do is rail against Maverick for the entirety of the movie. I did like his writing because in everything he said, I mean, it's a little bit cold where it's like, well, we're just going to double the time that this mission's going to take and people probably mm-hmm. aren't coming back from it, but that's the mission. That was a, a bit heavy handed where he's just like, I don't care if my pilots die. But at the same time, I did like how he was written because he's like, this is the job. I'm by the book. I'm He's yep. what Maverick could have been if Maverick followed the rules. Yeah. Yeah. He is what you imagine uh, Iceman would have been as the flight boss. Yeah, there you go. That's even better. Yeah. Um, which I want to get to Iceman because that was a cool thing in this movie. But They um, did a great job with that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, having, having John and John Hamm's great. Like I just, John Hamm's one of everything. those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't matter what he's doing. Good guy, bad guy, antagonist, hero. He's just great. Plus he's ridiculously funny. Um, mm-hmm. it's kind of unfair actually. Yeah. He's got it all. Like, <laughs> like, like John, come on, let's save a little bit of whatever you've got for the rest of us. <laughs> um, but he was good. My other complaint was, and I don't know if it was a scheduling thing, if they just didn't want, uh, if he didn't want to come back and do the movie, if they, they weren't able to secure him or what, is um, the character in this of Warlock, the other kind of flight boss that's, yeah. that's the subordinate of John Hamm, who was great. And um, I thought that that character was pretty fun. I wish that had been Sundown from the first Top Gun. Okay. Um, because I like Clarence Gilliard Jr. a lot, that actor. Um, you know, I loved him in, uh, he, he did, um, Theo in Die Hard. And then he was, he was sundown in Top Gun and he went on to like Walker, Texas Ranger and all this kind of stuff. And I just thought, oh, you're bringing everybody else back. You couldn't get him. I don't know the, the behind the scenes if they even tried or what, but that was, I was just kind of hoping that they had done that. They didn't. There might have also been something too, though, where if all the old faces show up and they're in similar positions to where they were it would lessen the story of like Maverick. You should have aged out of this years ago. True. True. That's, that's not a, that's not a bad point. Um, I just, I just liked him and I was kind of hoping we'd see him in there. But yeah. From, no, from, from the movie side of it, I see what you're saying, especially for a legacy mm-hmm. sequel, because that's what we're showing up for. Yeah. You know, and he could be the kind of guy because the character of Warlock sort of is a bit of a Maverick fan. He's sort of mm-hmm. on Maverick's side. And I feel like that could have been sundown because they did fly together a couple of missions. That's um, true. In, it would have fit in that first movie. So, but Hey, uh, it's fine. You know, we had, um, his, uh, warrant officer, uh, Hondo that follows him from, uh, from the opening, uh, opening thing to top gun. I loved how he was the one issuing the, uh, the pushups. Yeah, that was um, funny. That was, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I kind of wish we had more backstory for them because, 
there seems to be something there's like a they've obviously worked together for a long time and we don't really know it's sort of you know oh let's introduce a new character and he's got a backstory with our main character but but at the same time that's a little bit of world building it's sort of extra stuff that just it what it does is it makes me want to know more it makes me want to dive in more to like the world that they're that they have here yeah because they kind of did that with jennifer conley also right yeah a character who's mentioned in the first movie by name but that's it and uh then to have her in this as sort of the love interest which is a another one of those where i think that's that same kind of they were rewriting some of the end of the movie or the second half of the movie because Mm -hmm. she's sort of forgotten until the very end again because she doesn't have a big part of the mission obviously right yeah she has nothing to do with that with her having nothing to do that she just sort of like oh yeah remember her she was part of this movie too and then yeah (laughs) comes comes back at the end um and again jennifer connelly anything she's in doesn't matter if it's labyrinth when she's 16 or or this now i love seeing jennifer connelly and stuff she's a fantastic actor the the casting in this was very very good because all like the young people the faces you recognize the ones you don't they all Mm -hmm. did a great job um and uh we mentioned miles teller and I liked him a ton as Rooster. Um, it's kind of scary how much he looked like a young Anthony Edwards too. So he, I could he, see that he definitely like he definitely could pass as his son. <laughs> um, but Val Kilmer, Val Kilmer gets to come back. He has a cameo um, as Iceman, and that was a really, really great scene. And I think was kind of that emotional crux that that sort of push this movie over from being like a good legacy sequel to something where you're, you start to really, cause you really care about these two guys at that moment that they're sitting yeah. down together. And, you know, with Val Kilmer having gone through all of the health stuff that he has for him to be able to show up at all was pretty cool. Um, and I just like the way they worked all that. They worked it into the story that, you know, Iceman had throat cancer as well. Um, and it's back and all of this, uh, but I I dug that scene so much. Just the two of them, the the way they handled it was perfect. Because when when uh, Maverick was just texting with him, um, my friends like, oh, I hope he shows up. I loved his character, and I was like, I don't think he can. I don't think he can really act. He can't really speak. And then mm-hmm. the very next scene was, oh, his cancer's back. He's having a hard time speaking. He's it's like they just it's obvi- it's kind of the most obvious answer to the problem, but at the same time, yeah. genius the way they did it. And and so well done. And Val Kil- because Val Kilmer is the actor that he is, he can still convey so much without having to speak. Mm-hmm. And so that's where that whole scene is so great because here you got Val Kilmer who's not speaking, and there there's so much being said by the character of Maverick in response to here's my friend, you know, somebody that started off as a rival, became a friend, and you can imagine what they went through and he's seeing him in this state now where he can't talk and they, re- he kind of Maverick sort of realizes he doesn't need to, he doesn't need to to say a bunch of stuff. He can say it in a few words. And uh, I mean, I found, I found myself getting emotional during that scene. I'm not going to lie. Like, yeah, it was, it was one of those scenes. It's like, I didn't know how much I wanted this to be in the movie till I saw it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then they did, uh, I guess, synthesize his voice um, a little bit for those couple of lines he had that he kind of croaks out. Um, but As an that enhance was really or... powerful. 
I don't know if it was an enhance or if they like pieced it together so they could kind of AI uh, reconstruct. Okay, because I don't voice. know how bad his voice is at this point. I'm I'm not sure either. Um, if you had told me no, he his voice was just that scratchy, but he was able to to eke out those couple of lines. I'd believe you. Um, yeah. And those were again really powerful and 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 a great moment of levity too. Of the which yes, one of us yeah. is the better pilot? <laughs> this is this is a great moment. Let's not ruin it. Yeah, <laughs> that was really well done. And then you you know then you go back to the young group and you've got Hangman who is this generation's Iceman, uh, yeah, but like dialed up to eleven, and because he's all the things that Iceman was in that first movie, supremely confident to the point of being overly cocky, and you just but like also Glenn Powell, yeah, could back it up. Glenn Powell is great because he knew he understood the assignment of what he was supposed to do in this movie. And that was look as punchable as humanly possible. <laughs> He's got a great face for it. <laughs> he really like, you just want to punch him in the nose constantly. And it's so, it's so perfect because you know, he can back up everything that he's saying too. And that's what makes you want to hit him so bad. It's yeah. like, Oh, you can do it too. And that's the worst. I hate you for that. So <laughs> He was great. Um, I also loved little touches like the way their helmets were. If you if you go back and watch it again and like pay attention to little little production design things, their helmets are all like custom done and they have different fonts. And I just loved that. Like those were little touches. Uh, fanboy having like a Star Trek font. Yeah. For yep. his uh, his call sign. And then what a perfect call sign. He's just like giggling and, and grinning the whole movie. He's just <laughs> geeking out over everybody. Hangman missing the A's. Yeah, and, I thought that uh, was really cool with the underlying stuff. And, I thought yeah. was cool. Um, Bob, <laughs> which you're right, it was a joke that they never really played off. But I didn't realize this till I got done watching the movie. That's Bill Pullman's son. I did see his last name was Pullman. I was wondering, but I forgot to follow up. After I learned that, and then I saw his face, I'm like, okay, yeah, no, I see it now. But that's yeah. Bill Pullman's son, Lewis Pullman. Um, and uh, I liked him. He was fun because he's, you got to have, they didn't really have that character in the first movie, but you kind of got to have um, that one guy that's like a little, he doesn't quite get the joke. You know, he doesn't quite understand what's going on or, you know, that's how he ends up with a call sign like Bob. That was the best he could come up with was Bob short for Robert. And right. Uh, <laughs> he's almost uh, but, to some degree, like the audience point of view where he's the outsider on this whole group of, because they, they obviously had some kind of camaraderie, whether it was friendly mm -hmm. or not. Yeah. And that was the thing I liked, too, is it never... The one time it devolved into they wanted to fight each other, which would happen. I mean, these pilots are wired different. And yeah, they're so... You're all up. Yeah. But for the most part, they all got along really well. Most of the rivalry would be friendly rivalry. Um, and I liked that, too, because they didn't need to create extra forced tension with too much of that. They had just the right amount of it, I think, because again, hangman is the kind of guy that would um, push someone to the point of them wanting to punch him. And even him pushing rooster was actually what kind of what rooster ultimately needed. Rooster did yep. need to commit. He did need to move faster. He did need to not hesitate much, much the same way that Iceman being who he was in the first movie and Maverick being who he was, they needed each other to kind of offset. Mm -hmm. And it's just that there was no like 
there was no friendly way to do that. It had to be in an antagonistic manner because there was Maverick at that age wasn't going to listen to anybody that couldn't outdo him and Iceman right. could. And so it's sort of the same thing. Like Hangman knows that Rooster has this ability in him, but he also knows that the only way he's going to get it out of him is to kind of push him to the breaking point. And Rooster being who he is, being safe because of what happened to his dad, um, is uh, which was another kind of subplot that I thought was really interesting and sort of gives you a way to honor a character from the first movie without having to, like you said, bring in too many legacy characters, too many nostalgic characters. They don't have um, Rooster's mom, Meg Ryan's character, return for the movie. Instead, she dies off screen between the movies but her her hope or wish was that rooster not go into the navy because of losing goose right and you, not you know that being part of the tension between maverick and rooster is him not telling her because maverick thinks that's the way that he needs to do it and he sort of figures out at some point that like maybe that's not the way to treat him anymore but I do love, and it, it does give you the sense of where Maverick has grown as a person where he says, look, he can resent me for the rest of his life for what happened and for me pulling his papers from the, from the Naval Academy, but he shouldn't have to resent his mom too. Right. You he know, already lost taking, his dad. Now he's going to emotionally lose his mom. Like, no, I can be the bad yeah. guy here. Yep. And you know, that, that is something that young Maverick would not have done. Young Maverick wouldn't, uh, especially pre top gun, he just wouldn't have had the the stuff in him to to take that uh to jump on that grenade for somebody but that cements so much more of like his friendship with goose and that family um so i i really really enjoyed that well it's it did seem fun... like sorry go ahead no 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 i was going to say ahead. it did seem not seem it was like for Maverick losing Goose, it was just as impactful for the trajectory of the rest of his life as it was for Rooster. Yeah, absolutely. In some ways more so because, you know, obviously Rooster was too young to know who his father was, whereas Maverick and Goose had spent Yeah, that's so true. Much In a lot together. of ways, it was more impactful. You could just never say that to him, but. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and there's no like there's probably a part of that character of Rooster that would know that, but never want to admit it because it's his dad. That might have been part of the resentment, too. It was like, you got to know him. I didn't. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Um, so it was, I liked that as a subplot, but not focusing all of the movie on that. Because I yeah. think that would have worn, that would have worn thin uh, fairly quickly without other characters to kind of bring that about. So, but it makes for a good subplot and it gives Maverick yet another layer of things that he's dealing with. Um mm -hmm as the movie goes along so that then when they have their big moment where he Maverick can once again, save rooster and keep him, keep his promise um, and jump in front of that missile for him and go down. And then only to have rooster basically do the same thing and crash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I, I still, I've seen this movie twice now and I laugh so much when he runs up just as rooster is getting up from his parachute and just, pushes him back to the ground like what the hell is wrong with you it's so it, good it was a really good moment yeah and it was good timing too because you're right teetering on the edge of like okay the drama's really ramped up our main characters are in danger it's 
almost feeling like it's a little bit too much. Um, mm-hmm. So they have this moment of levity where it kind of like is a reset for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and I think this movie teetered on the edge of like it, it plays on a lot of nostalgia and it teetered on the edge of being too on the nose and too much because there's twice where Maverick is basically done. He's about to get shot down or shot by the helicopter. And then he's saved at the last second by a, a missile from one of his comrades. And uh, that could, that could be too much, but the movie somehow earns it. Uh, both yeah, because then they do it again when they're in the uh, what was the F eighteen the old plane that they steal, which yeah, even the just stealing F-14. the plane, I'm like that's it's just ridiculous. But oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like in in our world, if they got shot down like that, they're gonna find somewhere to hide and like hunker down and wait for a rescue because it's just the yeah two they're gonna get an exfil and then they're gonna have to make their way to it. But it would have been yeah. a totally different movie if it turns into Lone Survivor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but in this, you know, in this reality where where Maverick lives, uh, no, they can they can find an F fourteen that just happens to be, uh, you know, the only plane left standing on this entire runway, and it's yeah. still functional. Um, now that was a so that was a uh, a story choice that I thought was interesting is they never name the country that this is happening in. That's a good good move. And it's a good move, but they also, on top of not ever naming who it is, where this refinery, this um, you know, uh, uranium refinery was going to be happening, and all of that, they also mixed and matched stuff. So, like the the jets that they were flying, those um, fifth generation fighter jets, were um, they had you know red star circle. Uh, type logos like the old MIGs had in the first Top Gun, which are kind of North Korean-ish in nature. Yeah. Um, but then the F-14 was only ever flown outside of the U.S. by Iran. Um, and then the jets themselves were used, are I think, Russian. So, like, they yeah. mixed and matched all of the different possible things. So, you... you so you couldn't even say like, well, they're, it's obviously this. They wanted to kind of make it as ambiguous as they possibly could, which is smart. And I think also Very. just makes for a, a, a better movie. Yeah, I kind of had the impression it was like generic terrorist organization just buying these things on the black market, whatever they can get, wherever they can get it. Yeah. Um. So and but yeah, then uh, when they're in the F-14 and they're about to get shot down at the end by the obviously superior plane, which had a couple of great uh, laughable moments. Uh, like when that when he fires the missile and that thing does the full 180 u-turn on them Mm -hmm. and goes flat and comes back and they're just like maverick's never seen anything like that before (laughs) that cracked me up um but then hangman comes out of nowhere to save him at the last minute i think my note my exact notes were hangman ex machina like (laughs) but i'm i did show him in his plane like he was ready mm -hmm. to go because i was i was saying to my friend we were watching the movie is like, okay, they know they're in an old plane. They have the um, GPS identifier, whatever it was. They knew it was Rooster's thing. So it's like, okay, it is yep. Rooster. He's airborne. Why did they not give the the B team, like, okay, scramble the jets, get out there and bring them home? Yeah. Nope, I mean, I guess never... just to give you the surprise, but. Yeah, they wanted to keep it, keep us in suspense. But, and and I think in a lesser 
movie or or a movie where I don't care about these characters as much, I think that's even more important. That moment would feel wrong. It would feel mm -hmm. like, oh, come on, really? We're doing that now? But for some reason in this movie, I'm able to kind of give it a pass, I think because this character of Maverick and Rooster, you know, they finally kind of, they met at loggerheads and then they were able to sort of get over that a little bit, at least to a point. Um, and you care about them and you want to see them come out of the movie uh, and have a happy ending. And so, you know, can you could you call that lazy writing? Maybe, but I didn't mind it. Like, it didn't bother me. I, so. I also think, like, not only do you care about the characters, but it's also a sequel to a movie done in the era where the good guys go home, the good guys, you know, get the girl, get the prize, whatever. The bad mm -hmm. guys lose. Like, that's just, it's non-negotiable. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's a sequel to an true. 80s movie. So in, it's, it's a spiritually an 80s movie. It is. And it was a big part point of the first half of the movie that Maverick kept mentioning them coming home after the mission. Mm -hmm. His entire training regimen was about them not only being able to deliver the payload and take out the refinery, but come home afterwards. And that was and one so, of the big differences between him and John Hamm is like John Hamm was okay. He's like, we're probably going to lose one of these four planes, if not two. And yeah. Maverick's like, how about none? <laughs> <laughs> can, can we go with none, please? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was, that was great. Uh, there were some great kind of like moments in this that then I read about later uh, after the fact. And I'm like, wow, that, that actually happened that way. So when he takes off in the experimental jet in the beginning, um, that jet itself didn't actually fly. Uh, so I think they had an F-18 that did the flyover of that shot, that really cool shot where it comes straight over camera while Ed Harris is standing there. Yeah, yeah, and everything shakes. Um, yeah, it was cool. Yeah, and they, they composited in the jet. Um, over the F-18. But what's cool about that is, um, number one, Ed Harris was doing that shot and did stand completely straight when that happened. Uh, like he didn't shake or move at all, which shout out to Ed Harris for that. And the roof of that building wasn't supposed to do what it did. Like that was a, <laughs> that was a happy accident that just looked really cool yeah. to have that whole supersonic and the roof of that thing comes off and drops back down on it while Ed Harris is just standing there like, like Jim Cantori in a hurricane. And uh, I thought that was great. That makes it even um, cooler. Cause I remember my thought watching that shot was like, well, that's a bit much like the car is shaking. The roof comes off the building and this old guy doesn't even move, but it's like, no, that's how it actually happened. So deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I loved that. Uh, and there was just all of the shots from inside the cockpits of those planes give you this better sense. You could do so much of this, up even uh you know bring the camera in just a little bit closer green screen behind them and you can shoot a lot of it that way which most films would do that um most films that aren't tom cruise and trying to emulate what tony scott did 35 years ago mm -hmm. but to take the camera move it just back a little bit so you get a little bit wider of a shot they shot everything on imax film uh, which i did see this in an imax theater and that made that was phenomenal but so much of that background is real and there's something about that, uh, the way that it moves and the way that it, uh, that it, the shot interacts with itself. That is really cool. Like even a real simple one is, um, the, the interior shot of Maverick taking off when he takes off, uh, from the aircraft carrier, because 
what do you think of when you when you think of a plane taking off like that? It's the the pilot kind of gets thrown to the back of the seat, and the plane takes off. Yeah. But they added in they have added in the fact that it's a real plane taking off. So when he does that, he gets thrown to the back of the seat, and then when they come off the end of the aircraft carrier, there's that little drop before it takes off again, which is just a little piece of authenticity that adds a little something extra to that scene that if if I hadn't told you about that, you might not even really realize it consciously. Yeah, yeah. But like now you can sort of, if you watch it again and you know, like the second time through when I'm watching it this time, I was like, oh yeah, no, I didn't, didn't even register consciously with me the first time, but it made it feel more real to me watching it because of little things like that or just the way they moved inside the cockpit as it would bank left and right um it felt that much more real yeah yeah like you can you can recreate some of that in a gimbal and some of that on a sound stage but when you're not moving at those speeds it's not the same thing you can only you know star trek your way jumping around so much before it, it looks like somebody on a sound stage moving themselves as especially if the, the actors way... never felt it or anything like right it. yeah um another one was uh there's a shot when they uh, are in the F-14 and they invert that uh, rooster hits his head on the canopy. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't planned. He just wasn't strapped in well enough. <laughs> and they decided to leave it in because it kind of felt right. Like, Yeah, a little flaw like that you should leave in because if it's too polished, maybe you don't notice that it's too polished. But having a little bit of the polish taken off makes it feel that much more authentic, whether planned or not. Yeah. So it, like it adds an authenticity, and then on top of that, it's kind of a nice little. It it also is that happy accident of like, oh yeah, and Goose, his problem was the canopy, and here's Rooster bumping into the canopy. So that's I thought, even like, more perfect. Yeah, like it just it again it layers it adds itself onto to stuff like that, and that's what makes I think legacy sequels fun is you can play with that nostalgia and you can have stuff happen that. You know, you can do that sort of wink and nod like, hey, you remember this? But it's got to be done well. I think Kaczynski does a good job with that in this movie and in Tron Legacy. It's what made... And it's kind of sad because, like, again, this is, you know, a filmmaker that I love in Steven Spielberg, but it's what made me dis uh, dislike Kingdom of the Crystal Skull the way that I do. I don't hate the movie. I think there's definitely watchable parts of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, but... There was so much of it that at times just felt like, really? No, you, you, like you could have done that better. There's a better way to have that kind of a moment in the movie. And yeah. they felt lazy there. Whereas this movie didn't, didn't ever feel to me like they got lazy with their references. Or like I didn't mind, you know, Great Balls of Fire on the piano. I thought that was fine. But I also kind of love that song. So, <laughs> um. But they also built it in where Tom Cruise does have the flashbacks. It was very intentional. They weren't like trying to give you a nod. It was a direct like, this yeah. is what we're doing. Yep. Um, you know, we've had a rash of, I would say, since about Tron Legacy, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, a bunch of kind of these legacy sequels as sort of, you touched on it where we're kind of in a period of really heavy nostalgia. Um Yeah. And we're seeing more and more of these. The first one I can remember um, off the top of my head was Escape from L.A. Mm-hmm. was about 15 years after, 15, 16 years after Escape from New York. 
I didn't realize it was um, that far after. Yeah, because Escape from New York, I think, is 90 or not 91, 81. And uh, L.A. was like 96, I want to say. That makes sense. So uh, that was kind of the first time I could remember being like, wow, they're doing a sequel to that movie. That's that's an older movie. It's kind of, you know, because usually you want to make your sequels while the property is still uh, popular. Um, but what we're seeing is with all this kind of recycling of old properties that we're getting these legacy sequels. So they bring back uh, Indiana Jones. That does a ton of money. Uh, and it's, you know, down the line, more and more people have disliked it. Again, I don't think it's the word. Like, it's certainly watchable, but I'm not going to choose to watch it if I've got the other three uh, movies <laughs> Right, to if watch. you're going to watch an Indiana Jones movie, it's not that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have three choices that are all better. Um, although I am cautiously optimistic for the new one. Uh, I, I'm scared, but it's like... I don't think it's going to be worse than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull because of the insane backlash. I think they're like, we have to do better and give Harrison Ford a better send off. Yes. I also, I trust in James Mangold, the director. I mean, he's the man brought us Logan and which was excellent. uh, Yeah. And some of my, like, I love his movie identity. I love Copland. Um, so he, he's a director that I trust in a movie. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. But you had Tron legacy. You had, um, this movie, um, blade runner 2049 was another one that had Mm -hmm. 30 something years, I think between them or something like that. Ironically, another Harrison Ford movie. Um, (laughs) if you had to kind of pick a favorite out of those legacy sequels, um, that you've seen, uh, where do you have one that you like more than the rest of them? I mean, not just because I'm a massive, massive Star Wars fan, but I really think they nailed it with The Force Awakens. Say that what you was... want about the rest of the sequel trilogy. I mean, that's an endless conversation we could have. <laughs> um, but that one, it was like, this is Star Wars for a new generation. It's giving you all the things you loved about it. A couple mm-hmm. things I think they... I, I think it's unforgivable that they didn't get Luke and Leia and Han at least in a shot together yeah you gotta give us those people you know with r2 and c3po you have to give it but it's too late now it's it is what it is um but all things considered i think that's the best you can do on relaunching a franchise that never really went away and do it right that's a good one because they sort of with the overall public feel after the prequel trilogy it sort of felt like they had to say, okay, look, we, we can remember how to make Star Wars. Here's a here's Star Wars for you, mm-hmm. and let's restart things. Um, that's a great choice because it did. It gave it, it honestly gave that same kind of a feel of watching A New Hope for the first time. And for this generation, it is that. Um, and that's a, that's a thing I think a lot of people can forget sometimes, especially if you're like me and you grew up with a certain franchise. Uh, you know, cause I'll talk to, to people that are 10, 15 years younger than me. And for them, the prequel trilogy is, is their favorite star Wars. That's what they grew up on. That was, those were the first star Wars movies they saw. They yeah. created those connections at a young age and that kind of stuff doesn't really go away. And they so, were also the right age for like Jar Jar, which gets lambasted, but now he's kind of coming around where people are appreciating mm-hmm. what he did for kids. Yeah. And so, I think that makes a huge difference. And I think that's where legacy sequels can be tricky because you have to play to 
both sides of it. You've got to make something that is going to pull at the nostalgia, tug at the heartstrings of the, the people that saw it originally, but it still has to be something new. It still has to be yeah. something that can be watched today that people are going to enjoy. Um, you know, Escape from LA, Escape from New York is an interesting case because it was the same director and it was kind of, that almost felt like John Carpenter being like, ah, eh, you know, I can pretty much do whatever. Uh, you want me to make a sequel to something? Sure. I can it, tonally, it's so different. It is very different. Um, so I kind of don't put that in the same category um, as a lot of these because yeah. it was kind of, it almost felt like Carpenter making fun of his own movies in a way. Yes, it does. Yeah. And it's funny. It it, it does hold up as a oh, comedy, yeah. but <laughs> oh sure, um, you know you could even look at uh, Scream Four as a legacy sequel, bringing back the Scream franchise after yeah. however long it had been, um, and sort of revitalizing that horror franchises get this every so often anyway. So again, those are kind Maybe of almost a different times. animal, <laughs> but some of them far too many times. Um, I think one had, that like, did it. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Uh, one movie that did it really, really well without being as on the nose as like Force Awakens was Creed compared to Rocky. Yes. Yes. I wanted to bring that one up. That's a great choice because it's not they what they did there that I liked is they didn't just remake the first story. Yeah. So it's they really gave the you opposite. something. Yeah. Yeah. They gave you something real fresh and real new while still honoring what had come before it and being part of that world. And that's a, that's a testament to a filmmaker that just knows what they're trying to do and can really pull that off. And it's not easy to do. Um, Creed is a great example. And then, uh, you know, I do think that Tron legacy for all of its faults, I think it was ahead of its time. Uh, it was trying, it was very ambitious. Mm -hmm. Um, and it really tried to do a lot. You know, if you had, the de-aging technology of movies from say six, seven years after Tron legacy and, and, and further. And you put that in there. That's a whole different movie. Cause one of the complaints is, Oh, young Jeff Bridges looks plastic and looks weird a little bit. But if you put yourself in the mindset of 2010, when that movie came out, it's phenomenal. That the other pass you can give that, that is good. he is inside a video game, right? He that was is the other part of that. generated imagery. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is why when I saw it for the first time, I was like, this is perfect. He should look a little off. He shouldn't yeah. look like like a perfectly young Jeff Bridges. He's the uncanny the, valley version. Yeah. Now the you could say like the the scene early on in the movie where he's he is actually the younger version of himself. Okay, yes, yes. There. But it's sort of my take on like in uh in Rogue One, they bring in Grand Moff Tarkin. Yeah. And it's a cool effect they overused it. They really kind of needed Tarkin to sort of just be in the shadows a little bit more, in my opinion. And I think it would have been more effective to have just a little less of him on screen. Well, just to prove it in the very same movie, you have young Carrie Fisher with a word and it sells much better than young Tarkin. Yeah. Plus I also think from a narrative standpoint, having that much Tarkin in it took all the teeth out of Ben Mendelsohn's character, but that's a whole other arguments I could make like true it takes yes. your villain that's in your movie now and and neuters him right away kind of pushes him aside no longer... at the end of the movie yeah yeah um which in and that's a tough like Rogue One is a tough one because that's another one of those that's a legacy sequel and that they're trying to give us something new and bridge a gap um and 
if you're not paying attention, you might be like, oh yeah, Rogue One, sure. But then the more you think about it as you're watching the movie, you're like, yeah, none of these characters can survive because none of them are in later stories. They were all yep. here <laughs> only. So, um, but honestly, I think Top Gun Maverick, I don't know if it's at the top for me in terms of favorite, but it's right up there because again, they tow that line of, of going too far, but they pull back just enough from it. They give you, you know, you, it's a Top Gun movie. You've got to have the the shirtless guys running around, uh, oiled <laughs> yeah. up scene. But they did it a little bit differently in that now, instead of it just being them playing volleyball, Maverick's using it as a team-building exercise, and they're playing, how did he describe it? Um, it, it was like, uh, it was football, but they were playing offense and defense at the same time. Yeah, did he call it Top Gun football, offense, defense at the same time? It was something like that where... Yeah, it was something like that, and... I thought that was cool. That was a great way to mix it up just a little bit, make it something just a little bit different. Yeah. Um, while still nodding to the fact that like, yo, yeah, because you nailed it. This is an 80s movie in spirit. It absolutely yeah. is. So the only thing we were missing was the overly done uh, love scene with him and Jennifer Connelly. Like there was, it was there, but it was more sentimental in this. As opposed Which to was a was good in, change. It was the right Oh, choice. it was a very good change. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think so. I think so because I just feel like that that was a thing in 80s films that never made sense to me. I remember reviewing, and every time I watch Highlander, I have the same thought. Like, why did we have to have this scene? Like, I'm not a prude about anything. I don't have a problem with romantic scenes in movies. But when you have a movie where it's like, here's a story, 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 screeching halt, let's have this five-minute uh, sex scene and then we'll go back to it and it feels like they tacked that on just to like tech tick a box i don't yeah it's it's like sex sells so we have to put these things in it's like yeah but not so much anymore like we get it you could just like kind of yeah. show it starting and then fade to black and we know what's happening like it's fine mm -hmm. and i think too it also in in again narratively in this movie makes a lot more sense that now he's older a scene like that isn't going to make as much sense for him but also it's more of a, an emotional connection with him and uh, Jennifer Connelly's character and rekindling what they had kind of this on again, off again thing. And him sort of deciding like, because of the way he says it at the end, like I'm not letting, I'm gonna, not going to let you get away from me again type of thing. Like yeah. he's finally sort of realizing that, all right, I've done this pilot thing for 30 something years. It's probably time for me to settle down. And not plant be... some roots. Yeah. And that was something yeah. else. It's another one of those threads where in the five hour cut, there would be more to it because he says, I'm never going to leave you again. And then like two scenes later, he's like, by the way, going on this <laughs> near impossible mission, I wasn't supposed to be going on. And then when right. he gets back, she's like out on a trip with her daughter. So I'm like, oh, is she like, well, screw you. Like I gave you another shot. You went and did yep. this rebel crap again. But then they just kind of like, <laughs> they didn't really have time to resolve it all. So yeah. Yeah, no, I, I very much uh, agree with you there. And I think, too, a movie like this, again, it comes back to a director that knows what they want to make and how to do this type of movie because a legacy sequel like this is just tricky to do, to do yeah. well, I should say. And then, to your point, casting, on point, everybody. Yep. Like there isn't a bad there there isn't a miscast person in this movie. You want to do a, a updated version of Iceman? You name him Hangman. You get Glenn Powell and just have him be smarmy and smirk the whole like his <laughs> smile, the smile that he had. You just like I just want to knock his teeth out. 
Yeah. It's perfect. <laughs> it's exactly what you think of when you when you see when you watch the first Top Gun and you see Val Kilmer with that same smile as he's like twirling the pen. And you're just like, I just want to knock his teeth right out of his head. It's perfect. Yep. <laughs> um, all of them. I mean, and I kind of want more sort of expand on uh, the Top Gun stuff uh, with new characters now. Get these get these characters back. Have Fanboy and Payback and Bob all, you know, doing whatever they do. And maybe they got to get together for yet another crazy mission. But now, well, they now what they Maverick should do anymore. in a few years is Top Gun 3, where Maverick is 15, 20 minutes of screen time. Mm-hmm. Or, you know what would be kind of cool? Uh, it, there's no way you could make it and make it for uh, the budget that it would take, but a series that could follow some yeah. of these different characters. And you could sort of that see would them be cool, yeah. Interact, but it would be a lot um, of classroom time. <laughs> it would be. It have to be a lot of classroom time because there's no way they could afford to shoot that many dogfights. Like you'd have to have one episode. And after what they've given us, you fights. can't do a half-ass job on it. <laughs> exactly. But it's just the, these characters, like finding out and learning more about Phoenix and how, like, because they know each other too. That's the cool thing is all these young characters knew each other from everything that they've been doing, and then they're all coming back together. So it's like, and you've got yeah, you uh, could do like Top Gun one point five without Maverick. <laughs> yeah, Hangman's the only one that shot down an enemy, um, and uh, but then you know Phoenix is obviously a hell of a pilot because she's the one that gets picked for the mission. Her and Bob, um, all that kind of stuff. Get some uh, some background on John Hamm's character and sort of what he went through. Yeah, would be interesting too. So I I yeah, he I very much enjoyed. Yeah. I very much enjoyed this movie, and it sounds like uh, you had a real good time with it, too, so I'm glad. I definitely did. I mean, if you took everything out of the planes and made it a hundred times worse, it's still worth watching. But the fact that they made all the connecting tissue really enjoyable also. Good, you could say, is objective because a lot of it, a lot of it is on the nose. They did introduce a lot of plots that they didn't tie up, but mm-hmm. the ultimate end result, I didn't really care that they didn't pay off the Bob call sign joke that the miles teller coming around was a little too quick. I didn't really care. I didn't need another half hour of it. No. And honestly, another half hour in this movie and it's way too like they paced it really well. Yeah. Um, Cause it, it, it feels like it plays longer than the two hours and 10 minutes that it is two hours plus with, you know, another eight to 10 minutes of credits mm-hmm. um, because it plays long for that, but it works. And that's always been my thing is I don't care how long a movie is or how short it is. I don't, I don't care if a movie's 85 minutes long or three hours long. If it's paced well, that's, that's what matters to me. Yeah. Um, and this was a movie that I think paced itself fairly well. Um, and definitely I don't, I don't want necessarily I, like it's a testament to the movie. I want the five hour cut, but I don't want the five hour cut. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Time. Exactly. If it came out, I would watch it for the background, but it would be like it would be like reading a supplemental book to know what's going on in the movie. It wouldn't mm-hmm. be how I would sell it to a new viewer. Right, exactly that. That's perfect. Excellent. Well, this has been fun. It's been great to have you back on, Adam. Um, yeah, thanks we'll a lot. I always love this. We're not going to go another two years. We'll we'll do it more re- more more often. <laughs> Sounds than that. good. Um, so you're on So Wizard. Um, yep, I do and... the So Wizard podcast YouTube channel. Okay, excellent. So you can see me on YouTube. Perfect. 
Um, and uh, I'm going to have all your co-hosts from So Wizard on this week too, or uh, this month. Um, Joey's coming in, Marcellus and uh, Aubrey are all going to be on in the next few weeks. Um, yeah, it's so very cool. Be a lot so of Wizard fun. month. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot of fun for me because you guys are great. Uh, I love the show. I love So Wizard and uh and a lot of the content that you guys put out and it's just fantastic and and it's good to see good to see and hear like the different um thoughts and the different ideas that you guys all bring to the table it's it's a lot of fun and it's great having you guys you're all great guests too um so yeah, so wizard you. podcast on youtube uh and then uh also it's uh it's so wizard podcast on twitter i think as well i think it's so, so wizard, wizard podcast on everything uh, Twitter, right. Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok. Joey's been doing a lot of comic reviews and stuff on TikTok. He's really got that going. Excellent. So definitely check that out. Um, and uh, come back next week when Joey's going to be on. Uh, and, you know, he's going to watch Hook for the first time. He's never seen it. Oh, good pick. Good pick. Yeah. I can't wait because that, uh, that movie's got... It's divisive, which is weird really? to think about. Yeah, yeah, there are people out there that, that really don't like that movie and i'm curious to see what joey thinks about it when he when he finally gets a chance to watch it yeah i'm definitely gonna have to watch that one because that movie was <laughs> i mean i probably watched that weekly as a kid for years oh yeah oh yeah i definitely watched growing up as a fan of robin williams as much as exactly. i was exactly i couldn't help but watch that all the time i actually was in uh a film festival um my friends and i submitted a film when we were like 20 and the only other I think f there were two other feature film uh, length submissions. And one of them was uh, with uh, Dante Basco um, Rufio from hook. Okay. Was in it. So that was, that was kind of fun to be in the same film festival. As yeah. Well. A little bit of a full circle moment there. Yeah. So, uh, well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here. This is a ton of fun. Um, I do this show live on Sunday nights, uh, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis, uh, 8 PM Eastern time show comes out on Wednesdays. You can also check out my YouTube channel at TV's Travis. I put uh, archives of this show. I'm, gonna, I'm starting to work on some new um, YouTube only content uh, as well. Um, so uh, definitely check out that. Uh, I'm all over every social media platform as TV's Travis. And there is even a Patreon for this show uh, for as little as $1 per episode. You can support the show that way or just support the show by telling people about it and getting them to listen. Uh, that's great, too. So I will be back next week with Joey from the So Wizard Podcast, and we're gonna I'm gonna make him watch Hook. Uh, but Adam, thank you so much for being here tonight. Yeah, thank you. And uh, get out, enjoy your movies, and let's be excellent to each other. This has been Wait You Haven't Seen. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>